Blog Talk Radio. Gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this is the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm your host, I'm Robert Winfrey, and I want to thank everyone for listening in. Tonight we will be reviewing UFC 216. I believe that's, and there's a few news items I want to touch on as well, but that's going to be the bulk of it is UFC 216, which... uh, is going to be one of those underperforming cards in terms of monetary value. They had a very low gate. Uh, I think their gate was it was low, especially by UFC standards. Uh, the attendance was relatively low. Now some of that was probably affected by the last week, not too long after we signed off the air, actually the shootings in Las Vegas. And it's probably going to do. Uh, less than desirable numbers on pay-per-view. Let's see. The game but, was 10,600... 677,900. Yeah, okay. It, it, by the UFC standards, that's on the lower end. Right. And I think well, um, I think a lot of the media members were talking about how the you know, elements of the upper they deck don't were... Always sell out. They don't off. always sell out for Las Vegas, honestly. Uh, also true, but... Like, yeah. Sometimes yeah, Vegas, the big as a... Vegas events are just priced out. Are just priced out. Um, I I'll, I think if you look up the records, some of those big Lesnar cards in Vegas didn't even get over eleven thousand. Actually. Yeah. They, again, like so. it, there's variables, of course, but just as far as you know, UFC but average yeah, gates, it was really it's on the look, lower end. I mean, look, look, not many people want to go to Vegas right now, guys. Yeah, it wasn't just yeah, it wasn't just lack of hype for the car. It was, you know, uh, there was a the maniac who the country's in a bit of a state right now. Let's just be honest. Yeah, there was a maniac who. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, this is not a political he podcast, or even a, a, right? Right. Uh, I don't want to get too far into it. Yeah. I assume you all know what happened. Stephen Paddock. Stephen Paddock at the at the country music festival. Uh, a gunman uh, opened fire. So, yeah, it's it was just one. It was just a week. Thing. We're only a week removed from this. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, there there were a lot of factors that went into this. You know, being on the lower end and on the plus side, and I want to bring this up. Um, I forget. I think it was UFC two. I can't remember the number. Oh, four, I want to say. Don't hold me to that, but 
the one that like lost the Jones Cormier rematch a week or so out and was just, it was riddled with you know, fights falling through and injuries. And it, I think that it was headlined by Max Holloway and Anthony Pettis for the interim featherweight title when Pettis missed weight. I, I think that thing has like, that did like lower than DJ headlining numbers. It was a terrible pay-per-view event. It was just terrible in terms of buy rate. It was an exceptional event for anyone who saw it okay. because it was a glorious event. It was that full fight of was tremendous UFC fights. 206 and it did a $1.8 million gate in 18,000 people in Toronto. Yeah, it did a, it did a good lot local Again, it did a good game. Yeah, I remember that. Do good. It just didn't do a good pay per view. Like it didn't do big on pay per view. No, it was like it was barely over a hundred thousand, if memory serves. I mean, the the exact number isn't terribly relevant. Right. Well, the point being, it was the lowest selling pay per view of that year, and like of the last two or three years. Again, but in terms of the action it delivered, it was the best card of that year. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Uh, Luke Thomas mentioned this after UFC 206, and I, I feel it needs to be reiterated here in the wake of this card. If you are a hardcore fight fan, especially of MMA, events like this are your reward. The events that just del- overperform to the smaller audience, this is your reward for dealing with all of the Fight Pass exclusive events that are 90% forgettable for dealing with, you know, the that UFC Japan card, which was decent yeah. enough, but wasn't all that different from your average Bellator and, event. And that was with, uh, and that was with some fights still falling apart this week or last yeah. week, I should say. Yeah. Like and right so before. I just wanted to say, you know, this is an underperforming event financially. It is an it absolutely overperformed in terms of action and entertainment you, value, action, violence, and everything. If you have not it was seen probably, this event, for me, it was probably one of my favorite cards of the year so far that we've seen this yeah. year. I would say I'd have to go back like card by card, but uh, so yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about was, that about. Yeah. Demi- about Demetrius Johnson but, making but history. To me, the, here's my problem. Here's my problem. If we're going to talk about, since we're talking about that, yeah. To me, the problem is is fights falling apart at the very last minute, and either fighters, you know, not doing their due diligence and not taking responsibility for themselves, or just just all sorts of insanity happening, or, or fighters failing drug tests, or not making weight, or there's some sort of medical issue. It's just. And um, yeah, it's just all this, all this craziness, and we almost and look, we almost had something this weekend with Kevin Lee. We were uh, close. And you know <laughs> what? And we and we can talk about this more later, Robert. It's very we can we can very much make an argument. Kevin Lee should not have been fighting last night. He should not have been. I'll say that straight up. I mean, he. All the right. fact that he performed as well as he did. So should we is, even be praising this event with the idea in mind that Kevin Lee really probably should not have even been inside the octagon last night? Is it even I'll right still, to, to, yeah. I'll still praise the action. I am, I have like 
I have a significant number of words for the Nevada State Athletic Commission for allowing someone with an obvious staff infection to engage in combat. All right. Well, with that aside, I'm Jeffrey Harris. It's great to have you all back this week. Robert, it's great to be back. Thank you. This is the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, and thank you all for joining us. All right. Your main event for UFC 216, uh, Tony Ferguson defeats Kevin Lee via submission triangle choke in the third round. Uh, this is this is one of those weird bits of like trivia that I latch onto for some reason. There's only been one Kimura finish in UFC championship history. Uh, that was Demetrius Johnson over Chris Carriasso. There have only been two triangle choke submissions in UFC championship history. The first was Anderson Silva over Chael Sonnen, and for the record, no, we are not counting the tournament days. Otherwise, Hoist Gracie over Dan Severn would be on the list, but we're not counting that for, for the purposes of like the actual championships. You had Anderson Silva over Chael Sonnen, and then you have Tony Ferguson over Kevin Lee. Those are the only two. It's, <laughs> it's not an easy choke to get especially once people know how to defend it. And a lot of credit to Tony Ferguson for pulling that off. This was a fight. He tried it early. He tried it early and uh, Lee got out of it. Yeah. Uh, The whole finishing sequence. He had a solid attempt early on, but yeah. He tried like a a two arm triangle choke early, which almost never works. Um, Somebody got, there is one. Um, Elvis Sinisek over Jeremy Horn, I want to say, was a double arm triangle. It was a it was a good attempt. It was good for him to do anyway, since it kind of yeah. Got he him tried out that, of and then in the, the finishing sequence, he tried an arm bar that got really tight. Uh, I thought that was done. I thought the arm bar yeah. had him. And Lee, Lee, escaped. I really want to give Lee credit for having, you know, he looked like an intelligent fighter even at 25 years old, just turning 25, getting out of some of those submission attempts, even though he did yeah. ultimately get submitted. Yeah, he pulled a really nice, I think they call it the hitchhiker escape. Uh, it's the same one that Rich Franklin used to get out of Travis Luter's armbar. I'm jumping in the Wayback Machine again. If you want another example of what that kind of looks like. Uh, he got out of it, but as he got back, into Tony's guard after spinning through. Uh, he, he walked all the way around the head, removed all the pressure. Tony kind of shrimped his hips back into full guard. And as he did so, Lee just kind of took a break for a second. He didn't keep he didn't keep fighting the hands and to avoid hand control, uh, letting Tony get wrist control. And Tony got it again, uh, stuffed one of the arms back by the hip, lock up, locked up the triangle choke. And Lee kept trying to fight through it, but there's a certain position that once you get to, like, you're kind of done. And Kevin Lee tried everything he could to get out of that triangle choke at the end, but he was physically done. And I'll yell about that later. I want to talk about the action first. And he had to tap out. Um, as, far, as far as the overall fight, this went about as expected. Uh, Tony just applying pressure because that's what he does basically Uh, you know chopping with leg kicks front kicks to the body switching stances which is all things he does exceptionally well kevin lee utilizing a more traditional approach was able to land some good punches uh kevin lee's double leg 
we talked about it last week or is, you know, once he gets into the body lock, he's exceptional in that position because taking down Tony Ferguson is not easy. And Kevin Lee hit, um, I think three of four attempts. Uh, he's really, really good from that position. He, especially in the first round, he got full mount, got the back at one point. Um, just where Kevin Lee, where, where we knew Kevin Lee was good. He proved that he's really good. Uh, it's cause doing that, doing stuff like that to the level of competition he'd done before was impressive. Doing it to Tony Ferguson is elite upper echelon level stuff. But between the awful weight cut that Kevin Lee went through, he missed weight on his first attempt. Uh, the UFC decided to give him an hour. And apparently, this is one of those things. Not the uh, UFC. It's Nevada. No, no. Was, Nevada said was... he could. The UFC decided if they right. wanted to allow it. It's weird. It's the weirdest thing. Because if he's going to try and cut more weight, he does need a physician's approval. Okay. But we've seen in the past that guys missing weight on their first attempt, the UFC just decides that they don't wish to allot the extra time. And so, okay, you Are you need sure both about the, that? The, yeah. Um, I think Brett, Brett Akamoto talked about it on don't, Twitter. Don't, if a, don't most commissions allow some sort of like period, they will allow them to get extra time to still make the weight. Some some do, some don't. It's not uncommon, but with the early weigh-in structure, a lot of times that the UFC also has a say in whether or not they wish to allow it. Okay, but but here's my problem with this whole thing. Kevin Lee was at open workouts on Thursday. He was talking about weighing 274, not 174, weighing 185 uh, after the fight and eating tiramisu on fight week. And posting pictures of it, so I don't know what he was. I don't know what he was trying. I I I feel it's. I know it couldn't have been easy with a staff infection. Ugh, I don't even want to think about it. Like weight I, cutting I, I is the worst think, thing in the world, anyway. But I mean, you're fighting the biggest fight of your life, and 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 look, I can't imagine it was easy with the staff infection. But I gotta think he was not being all that responsible even with that in mind and still eating tiramisu cake before weighing in i mean look i love tiramisu as much as much as the next guy it's a great it's a glorious dessert yeah but if you're cutting weight come on guys (laughs) like there's certain things that if you're in the process of losing weight be that you know I had no mu- idea about the staph infection, but, but then, like, I'm watching these scrum interviews, and he's, like, he's talking about being 174 on, on open workout day and saying, like, yeah, it's fine. I was eating tiramisu the other night, and his coach was, like, oh, I wasn't there. I wasn't, seeing like, keeping an eye on him. I'm, like, that immediately sent out red flags, and I'm, like, well – you know how positive I was about Tony Ferguson last week. And then after hearing that, I'm like, well, I'm only more serious about it now, but yeah, I, as I soon know. as I saw I his like, weigh in photos, like I knew he was done. Like he looked like death, his profile walking to the cage on the attempt, walking to the scale when he actually made weight was shocking. But you know what? Credit to him. Bec- well, I don't know if I should even credit it, but 
It's I'll very credit him likely. for actually sucking it up and making it. I mean, I will, because a lot of guys I mean, wouldn't. There's a lot of guys who would have just said, screw it. All right. <laughs> I'm not uh, suffering through the weight cut right. anymore. I mean, I mean, look, Anthony, look, I mean, Anthony Pettis, I'm not surprised Anthony Pettis, I'm not going to give Anthony Pettis any sympathy, because one, I don't think he should have been fighting featherweight in the first place. I mean, when he did make featherweight before, he looked horrible. And he had tried to fight at featherweight before, and then and then the opportunity to fight Benson Henderson came up, and he ultimately went in that direction. But I don't know. I just don't think even with even even having the staff infection issue, I don't think he handled this right at all. And no, that's he did just not how I set feel. himself up. He clearly did not set himself up to do that as success, uh, as ideally and successfully as possible. But. Is is there any circumstance that, I mean, he said he tried to hide the staff infection, but how could how could the Nevada State Athletic Commission not know that that it was a pretty visible mark on his chest? How can they? How could you not notice that during a pre-fight examination? I have no earthly idea. Now, I will say this: that mark on his chest was not nearly as visible prior to like when he was walking out that's when you if you know it's there you can kind of see it if you look back at some of the you know open workouts or the weight or the you know the scale or making weight but it's really hard to see uh, it was it clearly i mean again by the time he walked to the cage it was big enough that as soon as he took off his shirt joe rogan on commentary said that looks like staff i mean does he have a staff infection and he did. He admitted it after the after the fight. He said, "Yeah, I, I did." And it, and I think it clearly affected his performance. Uh, it's just you're a commission. They should at least reimburse the physical detox that Tony Ferguson is going to have to go through after, you know, 14 minutes of fighting. A lot of it grappling with a guy who has visible staff bathe in Purell to get rid of that. Uh, Okay, but... It's a massive regulatory oversight. I mean... Isn't isn't fighting with the staff, isn't that also a danger to his opponent as well? Yes. He could easily have passed that to Tony Ferguson. The staff is contagious, is it not? Yes. Yes, it is. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just. It's very questionable here. To me, this is not quite as bad as what happened with Tim Haig in uh, in Canada. But I, I, I think this this definitely calls for some overhaul or for some some sort of oversight check here, just because. At least when when it sounded like he was allowed to continue cutting weight, it sounds like a do- it sounds like the right things were done. It's not, a doctor came in to look at him to see if he could cut if to see if he was healthy enough to basically cut at least two more pounds. Um, and he cut a pound and a half, and he was able to do it. Credit to him. But don't know how they can miss this staff thing. And as much as I like last night's card, I'm I feel like. I don't feel like we should let this issue go. And there, I think we should ask these questions of what happened with the staff infection and why he was allowed to fight. Now, 
I know fighters have fought through this before. I believe Luke Rockhold was re- – he didn't have a staph infection, but I believe he was recovering from staph infection for the Chris Weidman fight, correct? Something like that. Um, Conor McGregor was, was getting on, over us. Yeah, and he was Conor on, was getting um, over uh, yeah, Right. Luke Rockhold, right, Con- I recall, had, had, had staph infection, and he was on antibiotics. And, and he apparently reported this to, com- to the commission, and they checked out his antibiotics, and it was fine. Now, I, I think that was okay. Now, both now Rockhold did look a little off in that fight, and I think, you know, we, can, we know why. He was recovering from the staph infection. Wyman apparently had, you know, a foot issue or a broken foot or something. Okay, so here's what he said. He was apparently battling a staph infection in the last two weeks before UFC 94. So he might have still had he might have still had something, but apparently, as far as I know, the commission was aware of it, and, he, and they were aware he was taking medication for it, and they let it go anyway. So I guess it wasn't as serious as this, but I don't know, man. Uh, that's the type of thing that you really do need a, a qualified physician to talk about. Okay, you are far enough recovered from step from the infection that it's not going to pose all a right. danger to yourself or others. Uh, all right, calling all in, I believe. Okay, yeah. Hang on, I believe Pat Mullen's calling in. So, Pat, all are you right, there? Then. I am here, guys. I apologize for the tardiness. All right. That's all right. So, so Pat, gross incompetence by the NSAC for Kevin Lee ha- fighting with the staph infection last night and just barely making weight and looking like death at the weigh-ins? Uh, I mean, I know there's technically been precedent set before where they've allowed medical clearances to guys who have a staph infection based yeah. on Luke Rockhold the level of it. Yeah, and um, my, my thing in that scenario is when – you're in that situation. I, I get that fighter safety is important. They want to make sure it's not going to infect whoever's there. I don't necessarily think it's a good idea to let the person fight in the first place um, because of the complications that can potentially arise further. You're talking about somebody who already has this medical condition on their part, and you're fighting on a mat that people have already been on, bled on, et cetera, and have a million factors that could Pooped aggravate that occasions. condition. In some occasions, pooped on. Uh, and could aggravate that condition further and definitely cause health issues beyond what they're already dealing with. So, yeah, I do think there's a gross level of incompetence involved in terms of them letting Kevin Lee fight with that condition, and not even just for the potential of contagion, but for his own health. Did he look as good as he's ever looked in that fight? No. Do I think part of it was due to he was dealing with this infection? Yeah, sure. I don't think that was going to change the outcome as a whole, but maybe he puts on a better performance. And maybe he has a better camp, and who knows what could have happened. There's a million scenarios, but the fact that they let him fight with staff and it did visibly look like it affected him prior to the fight starting, I think it was a bad call, not to mention, like I said, the myriad of conditions that could have arisen if somebody else had staff on that card, if somebody, you know, has a blood contagion that wasn't picked up by the commission. Anything that could have happened could have made it so much worse than what we got. I mean, Nick Lex, um, he was pulled from the card uh, a short time before. He was having a, a glucose issue and suffering. He said he was suffering from diabetic-like symptoms. It could be something else entirely, but he was having some sort of uh, violent illness before the card that caused him to get removed. 
Yeah, the the Nick Lentz versus Will Brooks fight was pulled prior to the weigh-ins. Um, Nick Lentz has talked about this somewhat openly. He has done some serious damage to his body with weight cutting over the years, uh, specifically the time he spent at featherweight. And he is dealing with the physical repercussions of that decision. Um, the other fight we lost, in this instance, like right before, I'm sitting down, I'm getting ready to start coverage, and I'll, I I want uh, Pat your thoughts on the full Fer, Ferguson Lee fight as far as the action goes, rather than just Nevada's regulatory. I don't even want, I don't even have like an accurate word. Uh, but as a like right before the first fight pass fight was about to start, we're supposed to. News breaks that Derek Lewis is out of his fight with Fabricio Verdum. His back issues flared up again. Uh, he's got two bulging discs in his back, I think. Two or three. It's more than one. And his back locked up on him. He couldn't physically get out of bed. And I'm going to go ahead and say, if you can't physically get out of get up from a prone position, you probably shouldn't be fighting. Instead, they promoted Walt Harris from the prelims, where he was to fight Mark, Mark Godbeer, and Harris replaced Lewis against Fabricio Verdum on the main card. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, lost, we lost the fight between Nick Lentz and Will Brooks, which I was actually kind of looking forward to, and we lost, uh, it, we lost the whole fight because, uh, again, Harris versus Godbeer just didn't happen. Uh, this card suffered some adversity at the 11th hour. So uh, anyway, Pat, your thoughts on the actual fight between Lee and Ferguson. Um, I didn't give Tony Ferguson's guard work enough credit. He's improved that tremendously because Lee on top is no joke. And Ferguson, I mean, he was in a really bad spot in the first, but after that, he, we've seen his back game though, against wrestlers like Danny Castillo. I mean, he's, he's been in these situations before where he's put on his back but he has a very active and a very underrated uh, ground game off of his back, especially. I deeply underrated its efficacy going into this fight, and part of that is because Danny Castillo is content to lay and pray where Lee is more of an active top gamer. But anyway, your thoughts on that, Pat? I, I think his guard work definitely deserves a lot of praise. I know there's been a lot of people out there lately uh, who have been dismissing the guard position as, a danger position for the person on top because we've learned more about how to defend guard tactics from the bottom, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the guard is still a dangerous position when you have somebody who can do things as well as Tony Ferguson on bottom. And that's what we saw last night. If the guard is dead, he didn't get that memo, and neither did Kevin Lee, because he threw up a a beautiful triangle from the bottom to get the tap and the victory. Um, And a, a triangle is not an easy hole to pull off, especially on a very strong grappler. But part of why it worked is we talked about Tony Ferguson's frenetic pace last week, that he was going to put Kevin Lee in exchanges and situations that he wasn't familiar with and comfortable with. We talked about even though Kevin Lee has a freakish reach for a lightweight, Tony is the guy who's much better at judging distance and using it. And we saw that with how he was able to diversify his attack. He utilized his really good front kicks to attack the midsection and gauge distance. He utilized odd tactics. Like at one point, he threw a lead hand uppercut to start an exchange. And that's largely because he had Kevin Lee's distance game and he had the timing game. And Kevin Lee didn't. He didn't know how to compensate for that. And Tony, 
even though he does so many things unorthodox and things that normally you would advise against, he's smart enough at this point and athletic enough at this point that he can pull it off. And he set a pace that even though Kevin Lee had his moments in the first round, the amount of energy it took from him to do that, he didn't have it for the rest of the fight. And we saw Ferguson walk him into counter strikes that dropped him. There was one really beautiful right hand that dropped uh, uh, Kevin Lee to a knee. That was one of the highlights of the round for me and the fight for me. And Tony Ferguson is a mixed martial artist. He's not just capable of beating you in one area. He presents a lot of problems all over the place for you where you can't predict one way to fight him. You have to be prepared for a fight that's going to go everywhere. And even when it seems like you have the advantage, you may not. And that's what we saw last night. But I think it was a good fight for Kevin Lee. I think the fact that he didn't look immediately outclassed is a really good indicator that he's got a bright future. And on top of that, I think this experience is only going to make him better in that he saw where his deficiencies lie, where he needs to improve, and what he needs to do to get there. Yeah, Kevin Lee's just like barely turned 25. He's in. I did not realize he was that young. Uh, he's got a real bright future. And he was he already 9-2 get... in the UFC before this fight. Yeah. Uh, so think about that. Give him another couple of years, he might be the champion. That uh, uh, wouldn't but shock there's me. Definitely, there's definitely a maturity issue here. Um, even disregarding Nevada's incompetence here, he did not handle his weight-cutting situation right at all. And he definitely needs to keep an eye on that. And yeah. I'm not saying move up, but, you know, don't cut 20 pounds. Don't try to cut 20 pounds and don't eat tiramisu the day before a fight. You know, you know what that is, though? That goes back to guys who come from that wrestling base where because they're so conditioned to one style of action and they do that weight cut and they get through it and they make weight and then they can pile on the calories the day as soon as they weigh in and they're good. They can pile on those calories and then go ahead and wrestle. Fighting is very different from wrestling, and this is something that they all have to kind of learn the hard way at times we see, where if they're not coming in at an advanced stage for somebody starting out and understand the schematics that are involved, that, hey, I'm not just wrestling anymore. I have to actually execute holds when I'm in those positions. I have to strike. I have to defend against that. It's a very different animal with very different conditioning involved that guys who haven't been pushed in that direction don't understand until they get there sometimes. Um. So Tony Ferguson now wins ten in a row. Six Longest of those ten wins. Winning streak yeah. in UFC lightweight history. Right. Yeah, that now coming is in. the in- Yeah. So six of those wins were by submission. Um. But and look at the, the names on the resume. Yeah. Edson Barboza he has a seventy percent finishing rate over this over yeah. his current streak. It's. It's impressive, uh, but. I saw a couple things in this fight I didn't like. I thought in the first round he was keeping his hands way too low, and Kevin Lee made him pay for that. I just think I feel like he had, I feel like he had improved and, and closed up those holes in the Dos Anjos fight, and maybe he was trying to trap or, or lure Kevin Lee into something. I just feel like he was a little too loose with his defense here, and I hope he doesn't. If he does fight Conor McGregor, if I hope he doesn't do things like that because I think he yeah, can beat Conor I, McGregor. There, somebody joked that the hot take coming out of this fight was going to be there were only going to be two. 
One is Tony gets hit a lot, so Connor's going to sleep him, or Tony pushes a pace that Connor can't possibly keep up with. Both of which are true. <laughs> like neither one of those is an inaccurate statement. I really do hope they make that fight, but Dana White said that they're going to make Tony Ferguson versus Conor McGregor, so we're getting D- the DS trilogy. Let's all just kind of come to grips with I mean, that. Now. I mean, he also said he also said the ship had sailed on GSP Bisbing. GSP was going to fight the winner of Woodley Maya, yep. so I mean, we can't we can't take those statements. Oh. Amanda Nunez is never going to main event a, pay, a UFC pay-per-view ever again. We can't take those statements too seriously, Robert. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, that, hence the joke that, no, they're, they're going to do the Diaz trilogy. Um, I hope they make McGregor-Ferguson. I want to see that fight. There's a, again, there's a lot of points where they match up that favor each man. And I really do want to see how, they, how that plays out in real time. Uh, all right, with that out of the way... Woof. I in your co main event, Demetrius Johnson breaks Anderson Silva's record with eleven he gets to eleven consecutive title defenses. He submits Ray Borg in the fifth round, which is not terribly uncommon for Demetrius. This is his third fifth round uh submission. He might have the most fifth round finishes of any UFC champion ever. I'd be shocked if he doesn't. He is now third on the list of most finishes in UFC title fights. This was his sixth or seventh. I can't remember which one. It's one of those two. This was his seventh. He is only behind Matt Hughes at eight and Anderson Silva at nine. And not only did he finish Ray Borg in the fifth round, the way he did it, if you guys haven't seen this, (laughs) I'm going to... I I can only describe this in professional wrestling terms. He gets a rear waist lock on Ray Borg. And he he actually talked about the setup for this. He kind of, Borg really plants his weight so that he can't be thrown around. So Demetrius throws some knees to the thigh that are really nothing. He just wants to get Borg to shift his weight just a little. Because once he's not planted, he can move him. Borg obliges by trying to throw a back elbow. Demetrius heaves him into the air, as you would for a, a, you know, a German suplex. Let's go as he's at kind of the apex of this arc. And as Ray Borg is falling, he grabs an arm bar. And then Ray Borg tries, like, I'll give Ray Borg a ton of credit for this. He did not want to give up. He kept, he did everything he physically could to get out of that arm bar. He tried walking around. He tried throwing his legs up. His Part of the reason it lasted so long was he kept adjusting his wrist. And, de- and that's one of the – because you, in order to finish the arm bar, the elbow has to be you know, the fulcrum point. If you start twisting your arm, you can make it so you're, the, the pressure is not directly you know, opposed a, a to the way the joint's meant to go. That was a smoother transition. I've never seen like I don't even I don't even know if a high level BJJ specialist could pull something like that off. That, that's what yeah, I do. And, and I almost I almost hate saying this out loud, <laughs> but if you if you didn't think that this was real, that would be one of those things where you would be like, well, that that couldn't have been real. That had to be that had to be WWE style. No, and it wasn't. And that's the scary part about it. It yeah, looked I've never like a seen... WWE uh, video game move. 
thing after I could swear like, I've seen Rocky Romero use that at some on some like crappy indie match because Romero was all yeah, about transition. It's one of those, one the of those things part. where the physics of it shouldn't work, but we saw it. It happened. It was not. It was not elaborately planned or choreographed. It looked more legit than anything I've seen Dean Malenko ever do. It was for real, and it was breathtaking. Words are not going to do that submission justice. I will absolutely say it is the greatest finish to a UFC fight I've ever seen. Certainly the best submission. Go train with Demetrius Johnson. You could learn a a thing or two from Mighty Mouse. Yeah, and apparently... World champion uh, BJJ practice. Yeah, I mean, apparently he does this in training. Like, this is not out of the ordinary for him. Uh, uh, Brett Okamoto mentioned that told him prior to the Edmonton card, the uh, 215, where he was supposed to fight Borg, that people had told him they were seeing DJ use that suplex to armbar in, you know, practice and warm-ups and whatnot so much they thought he was going to try it. And, I mean, th- this was a brilliant, per- uh, setting aside the finish, this was still a brilliant performance from Demetrius Johnson. I gave him three 10-8 rounds in this. Yeah, this th- this might have been the most one-sided title fight we've ever seen. It's up there with like Joanna and Jessica Andrade. It's a it was a wipeout. It was an absolute wipeout. I there's a chance I was being generous giving Borg a you know giving DJ only a ten nine in the second. I mean, and to me that was there was an, there was a moment in the second round that. If you again, if you, if the finish doesn't sell you on DJ being just otherworldly, in the second round, Ray Borg is able to scramble as Demetrius is regaining his feet, and he gets Demetrius's back because Ray Borg is a good back taker. It's it's one of the, it, it's one of the things he does very very well. He has good back control when he gets there, and he as Demetrius you know just is wall walking because he was just kind of done with a scramble, I think, or he, he had just defended a takedown and. Borg is able to jump on his back into the backpack position. And I'm watching this like, oh, well, I, I didn't expect Borg to, you know, suddenly finish him at this point. But, okay, I wonder, you know, this is a position of dominance. And within five seconds, Demetrius has broken his grip, which is if you're, if you're standing and you're on someone's back, there's a lot of weight. You have to bear your own weight on through the legs and arms. It's much, it's a lot harder because again, they're carrying your weight, but you have to maintain tension to keep the position. He breaks his grip so that he is stuck holding himself up with again, essentially his thighs shakes, just like pops to shake Ray Borg until he slides off of his hips, turns and then falls into his guard. I mean, it was, okay, here's the best position Ray Borg could possibly be in. I mean, it's the best position you can be in regardless, but especially given his skill set. And within, like, three seconds, three to five seconds, Demetrius has completely neutralized it and is back to beating the crap out of him. I So Demetrius, much for Ray Borg being better at scrambles. I mean, didn't look better last night, Ray, boy. Yeah, like, Demetrius, like, proved a point, like, and I said this, I don't know if, I said this in the roundtable, I think, I don't think I got into the details of it here, Borg's an exceptional scrambler, but he doesn't really, 
consistently get dominant position out of it or control position is probably a more accurate descriptor. He likes to scramble with you because he can stay a step ahead most of the time and then get an advantageous position or wait for you to just fall two steps behind where he can really set something up. And he never got anything going against Demetrius. I don't think Ray Borg landed a single strike in the first round. I mean, he land, the final statistics for this were something like Demetrius landing 120-some-odd strikes and Ray Borg landing like 17. It's, it shouldn't – it boggles the mind that this could be that one-sided. Uh, Demetrius shut him down striking, shut him down grappling. And, just, and then, again, like the most breathtaking finish, the best submission in UFC, if not all of MMA history – I mean, I haven't had a physical reaction to something I saw in MMA like that since the Showtime kick. It was that... Again, I, please watch it. You have to see it, because words will not do this justice. Demetrius breaks this the record. This is right up there with one of the... This is, I think this is right up there as one of the greatest, I think, modern MMA finishes ever. I think it's... Possibly one of, if not the greatest, uh, UFC championship finish to a to a UFC title fight possibly ever. I think it's arguable. Yeah, I mean, any any that you would argue would be based on dramatic value as opposed to necessarily skill value. Uh, I mean, I I almost have nothing. I've I've been praising Demetrius Johnson for years, you know, literal years, uh, and. This was just again. I I I actually I have like be, no now, accurate now look. I could be completely wrong, but I feel like Johnson could have maybe ended this fight earlier. Nah. He could have submitted him earlier. I felt like he was toying with Ray Borg through more than half of this fight. Uh, Pat, any thoughts on that? You've seen you've seen a lot of fights. You've seen guys you know either carry someone or you deliberately want to make a point by making a fight go long? I don't think this was either. I, I think it was a case of, could he have finished him earlier? Yeah, I do think he could have finished him earlier. But he, in order to do that, he would have had to open himself up to more risk than it was probably worth to him. Whereas what we saw was complete and total domination over Ray Borg. And he got Ray Borg to a point where he felt like, if I have him here, I have him. And that's what he was looking for, a, a point where... He really, and that's the crazy part, as, as insane as this finish was to visually look at and see and break down, there was minimal risk involved in doing that. He had beaten Ray Borg so completely to that point that he knew where he had him, knew that he, he was capable of physically lifting this guy up into a German suplex. And on top of that, making the transition, because he had trained for it so often in his camp, that he had prepped for it this much. He knew that he had the position, knew he had the ability to pull it off. I don't think he was carrying him. I don't think he was necessarily playing with him so much as he was comfortable to sit in the driver's seat, cruise, take minimal risk at maximum reward, and then when he finally felt he had him in position to apply a finish, go for what he had to do and finish that fight in spectacular fashion. Well, the reason I like to finish is because a lot of, you know, analysts, they like to talk about dumbass moral victories. 
And you can argue if Borg went all five rounds with Johnson. Well, hey, I mean, no one expected him to beat Johnson anyway, but he went five rounds with the champ. I like that Johnson just took all of his moral victories away. And as far as I'm concerned, there are no moral victories for Ray Borg here. But I guess he did last for five rounds, But so I guess credit to that. But whatever. No moral victories for you, Ray Borg. Uh, moral victories are nice, but their consolation prize is the best. Um, no, I, 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 I don't really have anything to say that I haven't already said about Demetrius and his unbelievable ability. Uh, I don't know what he is does. Is Virgil jealous of that armbar? Because he, he, he didn't, he, he didn't get his bonus, and he didn't get. Uh, he didn't get performance of the night, arguably, because of Johnson stealing his thunder with that armbar. And, I mean, the the funny part is, and, um, you know, we'll get to it in a little more detail, the armbar Verdun pulled off is so difficult to pull off. It's a hard armbar to get when you have the position that Verdun did from the back to actually get that, not distribute your weight poorly and get reversed or put into a, a bad situation. Verdum's armbar was beautiful from a technical standpoint, but how do you compare it to that? It's, it's, it's just the worst scenario. It's coming home with your report card and you got, you know, better grades than every subject than you had last quarter. And then you get blown out of the water by the person who got straight A's. Yeah. Uh, it's just totally deflating. It, it is. I, and all right. Again, Demetrius, I don't know what he does next. If he stays at flyweight, it's the winner of Pettis Cejudo, even if that's a Cejudo rematch. Um, if he moves up, I I would be very interested to see how he does it back up at bantamweight. Um, I mean, he's so much better than when he last competed in that division. And when he last competed in that division, he was good enough to fight for the belt. Now, overall quality in that division has increased, and I don't. I'm not saying I think he'd be champion, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past him. I'll say that. I think he matches up well. I think he matches up very well with Dillashaw, Um, Cruz. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I feel like there's a shot he performs better against Cruz. I still wouldn't favor him. Yeah. I think that's probably where you're going with it, Jeff. Yeah, that's kind of – but, but I mean, you know, Cruz has put – he has a lot of miles and he has a lot of time in the sport, a lot of injuries. And then, I don't know, I, I think I, he can maybe – I see him doing well against Garbrandt. I think, I think the most interesting – I don't know. I think the most interesting fight that you could make with him in the top bantamweight would be Jimmy Rivera. I'd probably agree with that. Uh, Jimmy's a very – very powerful guy. He's a great wrestler. He's a diverse striker. Jimmy has good footwork. If you were going to just reintroduce Mighty Mouse to Bantamweight, even as just kind of a one-off to see how things go, uh, assuming Jimmy Rivera loses to Dominic Cruz, which not a given, but for the purposes of, you know, assumptions going forward, I'd be very interested in that fight. Well, that fight is happening, so so Rivera could be in that conversation very soon. Yeah, I I don't I'm not gonna pick Rivera to beat Cruz, but I think he performs a lot better than most people will expect. Um, all right, moving on because uh, I, again I have run out of 
actual superlatives for Demetrius Johnson. Um, if either of you guys want to touch on anything else about that fight in particular, or, you know, DJ as a fighter before getting on to Verdum versus Harris, you know, by all means. Um, Fabricio Verdum defeats Walt Harris with an armbar f- one minute and five seconds into the first round. This one is expected. I think he was a guy. I think he would have got essentially the same thing on Derek Lewis slightly, not as easily, but Verdum hits a single leg. Uh, harder to do on Lewis, but Lewis has a much better sprawl, and the single leg is kind of designed to get around guys who just have fast hips. It's a lot harder to just—you can't sprawl out of a single leg unless you read it from further out. Got down, passed through Walt Harris's guard like it wasn't there because he's Fabricio over Doom. Gets him <laughs> out. Uh, Walt Harris kind of sits up to kind of to try and escape the mount. Verdum lets him. Spins around to the back, and this was – when you talk about how you have to set things up in jiu-jitsu, in a jiu-jitsu context, this was beautiful because he spins to the back, and Walt Harris immediately grabs one of Verdum's arms to try to avoid a rear naked choke, which is the right thing to do, technically. They can't choke you with one arm. Or at least they shouldn't be able to, all things considered. So that's why you hand fight to block the choke. Verdum, knowing that he's going to do this, or at least feeling that he does this, puts himself in what should be a safe position for Walt Harris. You see a lot of times guys, when they grab that arm of the guy who has their back, they take it all the way over their head so that uh, their head is kind of like between the tricep and lat area. So that that arm is all the way on the other side of their body, because there's no way you're going to choke me with that arm. You're not going to get leverage with that arm. This is safe. That's about as safe as you can get in that position. So he kind of lets Walt Harris get his arm into that position because it sets him up perfectly to use his other hand to grab wrist control on one of those arms, slide a, slide his legs over for the arm bar, flatten him out, and that's all she wrote. Um, Sam Mercati said years ago, I think he wrote this, that arm bars from the back are one of the most underutilized, underappreciated techniques in all of MMA. We still don't see them very often. Uh, last one I recall seeing was, I think, Gilbert Burns, a fight or two of his ago. He hit an arm bar from the back. And he did it from a full body triangle, which is even more difficult because of the mechanics of, you know, just having two hooks versus having a body triangle. Uh, it's a, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that a lot of guys open themselves up to with how they try to defend rear naked chokes. And it's a risk because if you miss that arm bar, you're going to be on bottom. I mean, if you're Fabricio Verdum, you don't care because it's Fabricio Verdum. He's the best jujitsu practitioner in all of like MMA heavyweight history. You know what? I said it last night, and I'll say it tonight. I just want to give credit to Walt Harris for going out there and doing the J-O-B. He took it. <laughs> he went out there, and he took it like a man. Um, he was put in a situation where he basically wakes up. He finds out he's fighting Fabrizio Verdum on pay-per-view. He goes out there. He, he, he goes into the fight. No one's expecting anything out of him, and he lost. But he went out there, and he did his job, and Credit to him for that. Give him another fight. 
There, there yeah, are people I, who actually criticized him for, for being like, well, I don't want to fight for not, you know, or for refusing to fight Verdum. They said, why would you agree to that? You fought, you know, you, you trained to fight Mark, Mark Godbeer. Day of, they're going to change your opponent to a much more dangerous guy with a very different style. It's like, well, you know what? He's First of all, he's going to be rewarded financially for it because he's getting moved up. So that's, that's And that's really the end game. It's called prize fighting, folks. To be fair, hopefully yeah, I, he got more money for fighting on pay-per-view versus Fight Pass. I guarantee you he did. Um, <laughs> and probably a little if bit of a backdoor pay, man- too. If he has a good manager who has half a brain, he did. Yeah. On top of that, it's a situation where, he again, he has nothing to lose in that scenario. So why not take the shot just in case you do pull something off? Nobody's holding this win against him. You helped bail out the promotion in that regard because you helped replace a fight on the main card to feature a guy who they clearly want to feature in Verdun. Why would you Why would you not do that? So anybody who's criticizing him because he stepped in and took a loss, you clearly don't understand how this works. And, you know, credit to Verdun, too, because, you know, people probably didn't expect anything out of Walt Harris, but, I mean, Verdun probably – I mean, not many guys in Verdum's position would have would have taken a fight like that, changing day up, basically. No, he had yeah. everything to lose there. there. Yeah. And Verdum's in a position where he's trying to get back to the title. And I said afterward, normally I would say Verdum submitting Walt Harris is probably not enough to earn him a title shot against Stipe Miocic. But we're talking about the UFC heavyweight division. So True. considering how there's an extreme lack of contenders right now, and Stipe Miocic doesn't have an opponent, and um, Overeem versus Ngannou still hasn't happened uh, yet, and it's not happening for a while, you might you might just have to go ahead and book a Verdun Miocic rematch just to, to, to make sure Miocic has a fight booked in the next few months. Assuming Miocic and the UFC can kind of hash out their contra- their issues, they're gonna. Ha- they're gonna. They're, it's not. There aren't any major issues. He already said he's looking to fight in December or January. He wants to fight in December or January. Verdum just had a tune-up fight. Just go ahead and book that rematch if you want. Could be worse. Yeah, pending the outcome of Overeem and Ganu. Um, all right, Pat. Do you have anything else on this particular fight? No, it went about as expected. Credit to both guys for being willing to do that in that 24-hour scenario. Um, onward and upward for Verdum. Hopefully this got Walt Harris something a little bit more out of it than what he had initially. All right, next up we had our first women's flyweight bout since the UFC announced their intention of forming a division. They had a flyweight bout previously between Valerie Letourneau and – why am I blanking on her name? Joanne Calderwood. But since they announced the division, this is the first official one. Mara Romero. I think that was more of a catchweight fight, though. More so than they both than agreed an to flyweight. There right. were just no plans for a division. Now there are. Um, anyway, Mara Mara Romero Barella defeated Kalindra Fahia via submission, uh, rear naked choke, two fifty four of the first round. There's not a whole lot to talk about here. Borella's actually a really good grappler, apparently. Uh, once she got the takedown, she passed pretty easily. 
Uh, some of her setups, and this is this is like stupidly minute detail that no one will really care about. But if you watch the way she sets this up, um, even just some of her passing, getting her arms in proper position, it's all fundamental stuff, but it's all executed correctly. Um, again, there's not a whole lot to talk about here with a less than three minute fight, but Barella's got some really solid jujitsu chops. Uh, I, again, I, I look forward to seeing what flyweight winds up looking like once it really gets up and running for the women. But, uh, if you have to fight her next, I just, I'd stay off the mat if at all possible, because that seems to be something she's quite good at. Uh, Jeff, anything on this one? I thought it was a good showcase fight for uh, Mara Barella, and I mean she's from Italy, so I mean they can they can do stuff with that, and uh, to have a potential prospect uh, come from Italy, she looked good, um, and yeah, I think you know that's a good start for the division, and hopefully hopefully there will be good things going forward uh, once we crown a champion. Uh, Pat, thoughts on the you know uh, thoughts on this one? Uh, I've said it before. It's always fun to see a nice little buzzsaw go through somebody at times. And this was that on this card. Uh, Mar Barella, nice introduction for me to her here. Really great grappling. Love seeing her just mow through uh, Faria. I I got very intrigued in seeing her. I would love to see more of her. Obviously, against a better class of opponent to see what she's got. But this was good. This was action. This was going for the finish immediately and wanting to make a statement. She did it. I want to see more of her. All right. And kicking off the main card, Benil Dariush and Evan Dunham fought to a majority draw. Ugh. I'm okay with it. Um, I don't think I agreed with – okay. First of all, the 29-28, I, I disagree with not giving Dariush a 10-8 first round. I just do. Uh, he he walloped Evan Dunham pretty good in that round. Unfortunately, he couldn't finish him, and Evan Dunham rebounded. I think I scored this fight for Dariush. I gave him a 10-8 first, and I think I gave... Or did I score this a draw? I might be confusing this with the Venata Green fight in terms of my scoring. I might have just gone with a draw here, but... Anyway, Dariush puts a pretty solid beating on Evan Dunham in the first round, but can't finish him. Can't quite sustain the pace. Um, Dunham, uh, you know, comes back in the second, does a good job. They go into the third. I think the third was a close, was probably the closest round if I'm remembering correctly. And I might not be. Yeah, it was. Okay. Uh, again, a lot of cards, and there was another fight that went to a split, that went to a draw. So I'm trying to keep track of a lot of weird scoring and rounds. Um, this was a pretty good fight. I have, again, I have no real issues with the draw. Um, it's kind of weird to think that Evan Dunham is 34. Just again, just one of those weird things that you suddenly realize about a guy who's been fighting forever. That no, he's been fighting forever. Time has continued to elapse. Um, this was a this was a solid enough fight. It wasn't special, but I'm not complaining a whole lot. And again, there was another draw on this card that was on the prelim, so we'll probably talk about it a little bit. I'm okay with more draws in MMA. Draws aren't inherently bad. 
and this was an instance where I believe a draw is perfectly justifiable. I don't. I think this is more an indicator of the ceiling of both guys at this point in their careers than anything else. I think they've both passed their competitive peak, which is not to say that they've suddenly become terrible. But I, Darius was on the path to potentially fighting for the belt at one point, and he was derailed by you know, a couple of losses at key, at key points. I think he may have just passed the position in his career and his ability where he can be a top five guy you know, in the title discussion. I don't think so. I think he's still competitive. Well, he's still competitive, but I'd be very surprised if he's, again, in the title picture again. Yeah, I'm writing him off. I'm not going that far. No, I'm writing him off. Here's my thing. Uh, Evan Dunham is not any good anymore. Evan Dunham is has never gotten past where he was seven years ago in terms of his development as a fighter. If you can't, and, and on top of that, Darius had him dead to rights in the first round. Had him, even if he couldn't finish in the first round, he should have been able to finish him in the second round. And instead, he didn't know how to pace himself. He fought like an idiot. And as a result, Dunham fought his way back into the fight, which give Dunham credit. A lot of guys would have crumpled and folded. He didn't. If nothing else, Evan Dunham's tough. But that's a fight he shouldn't have been back into in the first place. The fact that he was able to get this to a draw speaks poorly of Darius and his abilities. And he's, on top of that, he's a choke artist. He gets put into positions where he has the chance to grab the brass ring and he falls and doesn't make it. He beat Jim Miller and Michael Johnson in consecutive fights and was in position where, hey, this is a guy we could potentially move into a, a big fight, and then Kiesa chokes him out. He's a fight winning streak at that Kiesa point when he's going into the Kiesa fight. Kiesa yeah, but and Etzebar both are solid, are solid fighters. Yeah, but the point is he's a choke artist because like, when he steps up, he gets beaten. And this wasn't even a step-up fight. This was a get-well fight for him, and he couldn't even perform well. All right. Jeff, thoughts on this one? I mean, I saw – honestly, I agree with you, Robert. I don't have a problem with scoring this fight a draw. Uh, I didn't hate the fight. Um, I, I I don't really see Darius becoming a contender, but I kind of see him staying and being more like a high-level gatekeeper to higher-ranked fighters, guys like – you know, Edson Barboza, maybe guys who are, you know, going to kind of stay around or hover around the, the top five or title contention. But I think I, I was impressed that Dunham was able to survive the first round and come back. And look, Dunham, I don't think, I wouldn't call him a great fighter, but he's been in the UFC a long time and he has a lot of fights and he's, he's an experienced veteran. And I think that helped to some degree help get us through this fight. And I don't have a problem with this fight or the other fight that was scored a draw on this card that they were scored draws. But at least this this one was scored a majority draw and, and it didn't have any point deductions or anything. One of the cards on that... All right, look, since that's the main card, here, here's the rest of this card. And there were some dull stretches here. Um, Cody Stamen, how is his nickname not like the Orchid? It's a botany joke, guys. I know no one else is going to get it. It's okay. <laughs> I don't know why. As soon as I heard that that's how he pronounces his last name, like, again, flower puns come into my head. Um, I, I hate that I, like, know that. But 
Anyway, Cody Stamen defeats Tom Dukenwa via split decision, 29-28, 28-29, and 30-27. I don't like 30-27. I think it completely undermines what Dukenwa was able to do in the first, but um, rounds two and three I thought were pretty clearly uh, for Stamen. Lando Venata and Bobby Green fight to a split draw, um, 29-27, 27-29, and 28-28. I feel like there had to be some kind of computational error. <laughs> 29-27 for Bobby Green is a shockingly bad score. That is shockingly bad. Um, uh, let me circle back to that. Let me get to the rest of these. Poliana Botello defeated Pro Gonzalez for unanimous decision. 30-27 across the board. This fight sucked. Matt Schnell defeated Marco Beltran via unanimous decision, 30-27 twice, and then 29-28. Not a whole lot memorable here. Matt Schnell Schnell is a well-schooled fighter. He thinks about things. You can see he knows what he's supposed to do. But he's so pedestrian in his execution, I can't really get behind him at this point. Um, John Moraga with... Good grief. Knocks out Magomed Bibluadov in the first round. He wobbled him with an overhand right that Bibluadov didn't quite get out of the way of. Misses a right high kick and then comes back across his body. Here's a boxing reference for everyone out there. Rocky Marciano versus uh, Ezard Charles style with a left hook from hell that just ends Bibluadov's night. Uh, I was pretty high on Bibluatov before this, um, and I still think there's a lot of potential there, but he was unprepared to deal with uh, the low leg kicks that Moraga threw. He threw some calf kicks that pretty clearly bothered him um, and didn't block properly. That Again, like this showed that while Bibluatov has a lot of uh, potential, there's still some seasoning and there's still some stuff that has to happen. And then Brad Tavares defeated Tallis Latest for unanimous decision, 30-27, 30-26 twice. Uh, this was one-sided for Brad Tavares. Tallis Latest just doesn't have it anymore. All right, the Venata versus Green fight. Lando Venata was deducted a point in the first round for an illegal knee, which he threw and which landed. It didn't land with – and this was something that I wanted to kind of yell at commentary about – It didn't land with the bone of the knee, but it did land with the thigh. And the rule about kneeing a downed opponent is not limit or kicking a downed opponent is not limited to like the knee and below. It doesn't matter. Like you can't use your leg to strike them in the head. And he did. He was deducted a point, which was probably the right call. I mean, this was a pretty flagrant violation. Like, Bobby Green was on both knees, barely starting to get guess, to one knee. I guess there's maybe a point that maybe the thigh would not have done as much damage to the head as the knee. Which is there's why a point Bo- there. There is a point there, which is why I think Bobby Green was able to continue. Because if right. that landed with the knee, like something might have broken, like structurally in the head. Um, Bobby Green walked it off, continued. We had a... When I say slow-paced, I don't mean boring. I mean, this wasn't frenetic. If you've ever seen, like, a real frantic brawl, this was a more slower-paced, very bloody brawl between these two guys. Um, With the point deduction, I had the first round 9-9. 
Um, there's a very valid argument to giving Venata that round 10-8, in which case you get 9-8 as a score. Um, I gave Venata the second, as a matter of fact. He, uh, Bobby Green was able to, again, recover from the foul. Uh, these two beat each other bloody. Then I gave Green the third. So, again, I, had, I think I had a 28-28 draw. I think I gave um, the second to Green, actually. Me. There's an argument, I think, for that. I don't think it's wrong. Um, again, I don't understand how you arrive at 29-27 for Bobby Green. That just, to me, just makes no sense math- mathematically or based on what I, I saw. Um, these two, again, they beat each other bloody. Lando Venata, um, we, we've got a few fights to kind of like draw conclusions for him now. That guy marks up. Um, I mean, he gets busted up in the face. There's a lot of things defensively that both guys were trying to do that against someone else might have worked. They were both doing – Bobby Green does a lot of shoulder rolls. They were both doing angles and, again, cutting angles and positioning and footwork. That against someone else, like if you're just a traditionalist, Bobby Green's shoulder rolling puts him in a good position to counter you. If you're just a traditionalist or even a slightly untraditionalist like Tony Ferguson, a lot of Lando Venata's setups are going to find purchase. Or, again, a lot of his defense is going to work in some respects because he's able to, you know, lean or move away from the offense. It's like what these two guys were doing essentially just countered each other defensively, resulting in them both taking a significant amount of damage to the head. So... Here we have one of those situations where one judge had it a draw, we, and then we had one judge 29-27 one way, and then 29-27 the other. I'm just uh, – man, it's like even if you're off around, I don't know how you arrive at that. Uh, Pat, Dude, this is just another one of those situations where you have to question the competency of the people we're putting in position to score these fights. Pat, what would it look like math? I mean, again, I, I only have the scorecard I kind of put together. And I know 29-27 for Venata is giving him, like, if you give him a 10-8 first and then the second and then losing the third, I think you get a 29-27 for him. How would you have to score this fight factoring in the point deduction to get 29-27 for Green? It, it would end up being you gave Green – potentially a rounds two and three and scored the first uh, nine, nine, which I don't agree with. That's weird. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> that, that's weird. Rizal like... scored it. Uh, so Marco Rosales gave it 29, 27 to green and he scored it. Not the first nine, nine, the second 10, nine for green, the third 10, nine for green. Weird. Yeah. So I and I can't justify that score. I don't see any way that Bobby Green won the second round. Uh, I thought that was clearly a Venata round. I thought Green won the third, and I thought the first round was a Venata round, but with the point deduction, it goes to nine nine instead of ten nine. And in a three round fight, when you have that happen, the end result is a draw on a card if you're scoring it, you know, correctly. Uh, in this instance we took a really odd turn to get there, but I don't think the end result of a draw is incorrect. 
it's just the way we got there is highly questionable and that's unfortunate and it's indicative of larger problems. All right, Pat, I'll stick with you for the rest of those prelims. Um, anything else you wanted to touch on? Any burning desires yeah. you have about the, those fights? Yeah. Uh, Cody Stamen, Stamen and uh, Tom Duke. How do you pronounce it, Robert? Duke and Wah. Duke and Wah. That was a really fun fight between two guys who I think have a lot to offer in the future. Um, I, I definitely want to see more of both of them. I think Stamen just came in with a better fight plan and executed. Uh, Duke and Watt did have his moments, particularly in some striking exchanges, which I know that's really his game. Um, and, and he's got time to improve, but I really liked what I saw from both of them. Um, Matt Schnell is a guy who, even as a flyweight, looks undersized for that division <laughs> because of his physique. But I give him a lot of credit. He really came in with a strong game plan. And while it wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing fight to watch, he really controlled the majority of it and fought well. And I, I have a soft spot for him because I happened to watch a terrible reality show that was aired on MTV a few years back called Caged. And he was a guy spotlighted in an amateur Louisiana promotion who looked to have a fair amount of potential to eventually maybe make it to a bigger stage. And seeing him fulfill that is, is rewarding for probably who followed him on that show and then saw him get to the ultimate fighter. And maybe after the ultimate fighter, he didn't think he'd go anywhere. He took a fight on short notice. But seeing him get to the UFC, seeing him win in the UFC is, is a nice story. And John Moraga with a surprise win here over Bibliotov. And it was well set up. He utilized the leg kicks to move Bibliotov into position for those wide punches, which is how he connected with the overhand right. And it's something he had to be working on in training to balance the weight shift and going from side to side. He followed that right with the high kick that missed and then came back all the way from the other side with the left hook that turned his lights out. Um, You know, there's a lot of guys who don't follow their kicks effectively with punches. One who does come to mind that does it well is Dominic Cruz. But he tends to follow a kick with a punch from the same side. This was a punch, kick from the same side, and come back from the opposite side with a punch. And because he had utilized the leg kicks earlier well, uh, Bibliotov was in position to be hit, and man, did he hit him. Uh, Well-executed game plan from Moraga, who's still young enough where if he builds some confidence back, he could potentially make a move again at flyweight. It's never necessarily been a question of the physical stuff with him. It's always been more the mental. And if he can put that together, maybe we'll see a run for Moraga eventually. All right, Jeff, any other thoughts on the prelims? Uh, I mean, props and credit to Lando Venata and Bobby Green for giving us an action-packed lightweight fight and certainly probably giving up a number of brain cells. I would just say go ahead and give both those guys their win bonuses in addition to fight of the night. Because, look, Bobby Green, dude's got three kids by three different women, okay? He's got kids, man. That's, that's why he's the king. Exactly. So, I mean, Hasn't he brought up to, like, the three different races, too? He's got a black woman, yeah. a Hispanic woman, and a white woman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So... <laughs> I, the guy's got kids. He's got and he's got three different women, three different baby mamas. Help the guy out a little bit. Um, 
John Mara- I mean, that John Moraga knockout was stunning. Um, I mean, the prospect going into this fight was uh, Magomed uh, Bibulatov, and he derailed that hype train. Um, he was not supposed to win that fight for all intents and purposes, and he won it in spectacular fashion. So good on him. Um, Brad Tavares still sucks. All and right. I'd like to also make reference if we're following up on that fight. Rob, you said Latest doesn't have it anymore. I ask you the question, when did Latest have it? There was a Lat- period of Latest time. Latest earned his way back. He earned his way back to the UFC, and it was fine to give him another shot in the UFC. But And I even mean, his return to the point, UFC, he had some good moments. Yeah. But, uh, he again, like... Tim Bosch. Knocked out Francis Carmont when Francis Carmont looked like he was going to be a thing for a while. You know, he had a, he had a few good wins. But yeah, not, you know, I forever hold point, a bit of a soft spot for Talos Latis because he got Francis Carmont out of the UFC. And I thank him forever for that. Um, but, yeah, like the, the split decision loss to Michael Bisbing, which is a, a fight you could score for him, very realistically, mind you. That seems to have been kind of the turning point. He has not looked anywhere near the same sense. I mean, he got smoked by Gegard Mousasi not too long after that, and he's just... uh, He's approaching shot fighter territory sooner rather than later. Uh, All right. I know UFC 216 didn't get a lot of hype um, or a tremendous amount of traffic, but thanks to everyone who did read along. Thanks to those who commented. I always appreciate it of you guys. Thanks to everyone who's read my report after the fact. Uh, again, just I know, believe me, I know just how many other places you can go for what I do. So thank you for your patronage. It, it is, uh, again, both humbling, sometimes baffling, and motivating. So thank you all very much for that. All right, I had one bit of news that I forgot to bring up last week, um, in large part because there were things going on around here. Uh, nothing terrible, just distractions. The UFC, I believe last week, ended their exclusive negotiation period with Fox uh, for their contract renewal. Which means they can now shop their product around other major net, around other networks. Again, this kind of went under the radar a little bit, but I think it's something worth discussing. Uh, Jeff, have you, again, any like rumblings you've heard about them favoring one over the other? Are there plans still to be a multi-platform? You know, they'll have some fights that are ESPN, some that are Fox, some that are CBS or you know whatever, kind of like the NFL has. Is that still kind of their plan? Do you know anything about this? Um, I just yeah. Some you know along those lines. Uh, Jeff, I think you're muted. All right, um, Pat. Then, <laughs> well, Jeff kind of <laughs> sorts out. Technical hey, issues back. abound. Okay, oh, here we go. There we go. Sorry, Jeff. So you heard my question, right? Or did, did what you was miss your that? Question? Can you repeat it for me? Okay. Yeah, the UFC ended their exclusive uh, the the period of time where they are exclusively negotiating with Fox to have their content right. air on the Fox network. Um, have you heard anything about them? You know, 
are they shopping for other networks? Do they want to be you know a multi network kind of deal like the NFL is, or you know, anything know you know about that? I don't know what they're doing, but I've I've heard that they might want to go multi network. I don't know if that's going to ha- if it's going to play out that way though. Uh, Pat, do you have any thoughts on this? Is there a particular network you might like to see them on? Do you think they'll just stick with Fox Sports after it's all said and done? Well, it's Fox in general, not just Fox Sports. But uh, you know, I know that I know that there's people who'd like you to believe that the UFC, in terms of uh, brand awareness, is on the same level as the NFL or Major League Baseball. Um, the reality is, it's not. It's not close. Um, especially for their lower level cards that you see that have been on FXX or Fox sports. Um, the, the brand visibility is not there, even though that there's a group led by Dana white that would like you to believe it is. Um, I honestly think what's best for them is if they want exposure, I don't think they make a move toward going multi-network and multi-platform. I think they need to stick with having, one particular network that they can kind of have as what's known as the UFC network. I think they lost visibility when they moved from spike because then people kind of had to search around for the content. And when you split your advertising across those platforms, it's not always effective. Even when they were housed solely on Fox programming and they were splitting stuff between Fox sports one, Fox sports two, FX, FXX, it was still a little bit much where people weren't sure when a card was on or what day a card was on. And that's problematic when you're spread over multiple networks, because in general, you're going to see less advertising because ABC does not want to heavily advertise a CBS spot unless they're getting paid a really handsome amount for it. Same thing with any other network. I think they'd be better off having a network all to their own that they know uh, that gets known as, Oh, that's the channel that UFC is on and build from there to expand the brand. Because I don't think what they've tried to do with the Fox contract has worked. I think they spread themselves too far, too thin over that network satellite and its satellite stations. I think they need to refocus the brand, revitalize a particular network that will work with them. And then you can talk about spreading yourself out a little more because I think they thought brand wise, they would be in a much more uh, aware position to the general public than they are right now at the end of this deal. Uh, UFC on the Paramount Network, maybe. (laughs) Uh, I don't think ESPN is going to happen because um, it seems that ESPN's in sort of a belt tightening phase and they're trying to cut costs now. So I don't think the UFC uh, is going to be on ESPN broadcasting anytime soon. Okay. Uh, for me, the big thing about this is going to be any st- whatever what structure they potentially wind up with, whoever they go with. Uh, we've all talked about it here, and the MMA community has talked about it over the last several years about their um, market saturation, just how many events there are. Because there's some that are honest, not all that exciting, um, stuff that is, for want of a better expression, Bellator level. And a, a lot of the re, a significant portion of the reason they have done that is they were contractually obligated to provide an amount of content. I'm curious as to whether or not they will scale that back. You know, whether the uh, 
for any other upcoming deals, whether they want to still do 40 shows a year, give or take, or if they're, because look, MMA is a, it's an individual sport. It's a star driven sport. And right now the UFC does not have a lot of them. When you have three or four major attractions that are drawing good numbers, you can run a higher number of shows and have them all be profitable. When you're in the fi- this state you are now, you that should that should be scaled back in an ideal world to maximize the shows that you do have, rather than again diluting the product. And I wonder if they will build into their next contract the ability to be more flexible with just the volume of shows they produce. I think one thing that really hurt was the Fox Sports uh, move. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers uh, were settling on FX and Fuel TV before the transition to Fox Sports. Um, and then you saw numbers decrease all across the board. Because I think when Fox Sports once started, it was in less homes than those other channels automatically. So yeah, there was, it was. It was available in less, it was available and packaged in less homes. And, you know, maybe it's partly due to the Nielsen system and the Nielsen system being antiquated and just not. But, Going by those numbers, the numbers were a lot better when they when it was uh, during the FX Fuel TV days. They were doing a lot better back then. Yeah, the, the whole decision to rebrand Fuel as and with Fox Sports One. I mean, the whole goal with Fox Sports as a network was to be a rival to ESPN, and that just as an endeavor failed miserably. Um, all right, real quick, just if you had to guess, yeah, if you had to guess, where do they actually wind up, Pat and then Jeff? Just which network? I would say their best option would be to go to ABC and that company because of the increased visibility. Their ESPN is under that umbrella of Disney-owned entities. They have WMG as their parent owner as a company. If they can broker a deal between there, maybe get some of their PR people to create stars out of some of the UFC's current roster, it may work better. That's a star-making promotional company in terms of not just WME, but Disney as a whole. I think there's many outlets that they have. Those guys even know how to package and turn these guys into stars. Which I, I think if you combine the Disney entity in there, they probably can. I mean, you look at how many people they have turned into stars that we found out aren't really capable of much beyond what Disney gave them, but they still were able to make millions off of them. I don't think that that would be much different. I would honestly, if I, if I was the company, I would want to land at Universal NBC because you could have fights on NBC, and on top of that, you could kick – PFL or whatever it's called now, off of NBC Sports, and basically take them over. All right, Jeff, uh, again, if you had to guess, where do you think they end up? Go 
gun to the head, I'm just going to say they re-up with Fox. All right. Uh, okay, so that was the only thing I really felt I really wanted to kind of bring up as far as news go. Jeff, is there any other major news items from the last little bit that you think we should uh, you want to touch on? Um, the Nevada State Athletic Con- Commission did address, going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, they did address the Kevin Lee situation. So I kind of wanted uh, to address that. The uh, executive director, Bob Bennett, Here's what he said. My lead ringside physician found Lee medically fit to fight. He was examined by our our, uh, lead ringside physician uh, along with another ringside physician. Both felt he was medically fit uh, to fight. Um, And this is what he told MMA fighting on Sunday after the fight was over. And this, this is after Lee said he tried his best to hide the staph infection. Um, it doesn't look like Bennett made any mention of the staff infection in the statement. So this is all he had to say. That's your basic boilerplate. All right. No actual addressing the issue of how a fighter could successfully hide staff from your medical personnel. Okay. No, that's just fa- that that's he fair. was medically, medically fit to fight. That's fair. All right. I, I, that's the type of ex- response you expect from a bureaucrat at this point. Okay. Okay, no actual addressing of the issues. Sounds like government uh, at its finest. Yeah. Okay, and uh, well, I mean, we talked about it last week, but now it's official. Max Holloway versus Frankie Edgar Woo-hoo. on December 2nd in Detroit. So that fight's official. Uh, joining Alistair Overeem versus Nganu. Uh Speaking of Nganu, he told reporters... Uh, on Saturday that he offered to fight Fabrizio Verdum instead of uh, Walt Harris. So he apparently, he apparently showed up and he's claiming he was ready to go and would have fought Verdum. I find that highly unlikely. Walt Harris was already scheduled to fight and made weight. Same with Verdum. Yeah, um, and Joanna was going to fight. Uh, Valentina I mean, Shevchenko. I mean, I mean, look, it, it, this it doesn't so, work that way, guys. It, look, it's ridiculous. There's no way you could have lined that up that quickly. Walt, the at least I can make sense in my head why Walt Harris versus Verdum happened, and the people are like the people who act like the UFC should have done this with it. And Ghana was already scheduled to fight over him. For, so one thing you you basically flush that fight down the toilet, and I highly doubt you could have put that fight together in uh, the same day. Maybe if you had, like, two days, you could have done that, but not not the same day. I'm sorry. No, yeah, look, fighters posturing about I'll fight someone on, you know, five hours' notice, it's not it's not going to happen. It, it's, it's just posturing. It's like Chuck Liddell saying, no, I was going to fight Rashad Evans after I tore my quad in half. Yeah, sure. No. You're posturing. Thanks. I'd rather you didn't. Um, but no, Holloway versus Edgar. I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to. This is not official, but my initial leaning, I think Holloway finishes him. And I, I agree. I don't think I've ever said that about a Frankie Edgar fight, even when I thought he was gonna lose. But the only thing I don't like about this fight is I kind of wanted to see Holloway versus Cub Swanson too. Uh, but I'm fine with this fight. 
I like this I'd be fight fine. Yeah, I, I, I know why they'd go with the fresh matchup over the rematch initially. I do kind of want to see Holloway versus Swanson again. I just want to really see Swanson see Holloway fight McGregor for the belt. Too. <laughs> I want to see Swanson fight for the belt at some point because the guy deserves it. He's been a great company man for the UFC. He's busted his ass. He's come back from some tough stretches, but Edgar has, you know, he's right there and arguably deserves his shot as well. And it's an outstanding fight, unquestionably. Yeah. I I want to see that fight. I do want to see the rematch. I agree with you about Swanson. Uh, just kind of, he's been in the trenches for a while and he's in a position to potentially earn a title shot. And again, I, I think it's a real crying shame that we're probably never going to get the rematch between Holloway and McGregor because at this point, uh, again, I, I would love it. I would love to see that fight run back. But okay. yeah, that's a that's a great fight. Um, and any any anything worth mentioning from the UFC 217 press conference and Michael Bisbing clowning it up with uh, with George? I you saw barely. That. I would are barely care about that. Sorry, Robert. Are you intoxicated? No, I don't drink. Look, I would barely <laughs> care about Bisbing versus GSP if they weren't essentially tying up an entire Robert, division. Robert, I with have it. to know: Are you intoxicated? <laughs> no, and even if I were, I would not be enticed to enjoy anything about the build-up to this fight. Uh, okay, well, did, did either of you guys happen to see uh, Dana after the card on Saturday when they asked him directly about Diaz McGregor? When he yeah, flat I out said, this is the fight we have to make. Internet, he said it's internet bullshit is what he said. Yeah, he said there's never been talk about it. We have to make Ferguson McGregor. So at what point do you think they'll announce Diaz McGregor 3? Next I week. I thought they'd. Look, when whenever Dana White Fire says himself, something Fire is not himself, happening, that fight gets announced next week. Bye. <laughs> Diaz McGregor versus McGregor three gets announced next week. I'm gonna buy that right now, fellas. Yeah, it's uh, whenever Dana White says something isn't happening, there's a good bet that it is. Um, uh, yeah, I just. Assuming McGregor actually does want to fight before the end of the year, they're prop they're going to wind up announcing Diaz McGregor three in time to promote it for the year end event. That would be my guess. It's, it's just to me, how is it productive in any way to shoot down, you know, the rumors of Diaz McGregor three? Like, how is that advantageous in any way? Like, say, hey, we're working on it, but there's the potential we may go Ferguson McGregor first. Throw both scenarios out there and get what the public wants so you can make the fight that'll make you the money, and then the next guy in line is there if you want him. Look, look ahead, I Jeff. want to see Ferguson McGregor, and if, he is ser- if he's serious about that, which I kind of doubt, um, that's the fight I want. Just because, look, Diaz hasn't even fought it at lightweight in forever. His last two fights were at welterweight. Um, and look, they, they created this interim title. They created an interim title. They have an interim champion. They have the lightweight champion who's done. If he's going to fight MMA again, that's the fight. So, I, I, I mean, I don't know why 
I get I get that there's this money fight there. Um and I know Audi Attar, McGregor's manager, put it out there that that's the fight they want. I, I, I don't I don't know. Maybe this is sort of a negotiating thing. I have no idea if it is it could be. Um I don't know what the play is here, but I don't want to see I don't want to see Diaz versus McGregor three. I didn't want to see Diaz McGregor one or two. <laughs> I just <laughs> I I am more than happy to take uh, a bit of flack for this, but when they announced the first one, I understood it was short notice, et cetera, et cetera. Like okay, I didn't want to see it, but there were external forces compelling a less than ideal circumstance and. To be fair, we got a great moment out of it. And look, the majority and of look, let's also look, McGregor, he jumped the line. He jumped over at the time Habib Nurmagomedov and and Tony Ferguson for that matter to get his shot at the belt. Yep. And, and again, even if we want to cite, you know, Khabib's history of not fighting at this point, Ferguson yeah. was still the guy in line to get there and they were like, "Eh, we're going to pass." Yeah, and again, I, I'm like the only MMA fan in the world that watched McGregor Diaz 2 without my pulse ever getting above, like, normal. I, I remember okay. covering that, and I, I was covering that, and I was watching the reactions on Twitter, and people like, this fight is life. You know, they, they're so loving. Here's, all right. Here's, like, here's what McGregor, here's what McGregor, this is what McGregor actually said uh, in late September for an evening with Conor McGregor. Um, he says, look, I've got the UFC title to, to defend, and that means something to me. I will defend that world title. Uh, Nate Diaz is there. He's trying to come in here and make all of these demands. If he starts pricing him, himself out of an event, I probably will defend against the person who wins this interim belt or something along that line to legitimize it again. I've already gone from the highest of the high in terms of a money fight. Now the question I always get is about defending uh, the belt and legitimizing the sport in the rankings. Uh, maybe now it will be a good time for me to go and do and do that and shut that side up. So I don't, you know, I don't know if he's posturing Nate, you know, for Nate Diaz to accept that challenge there, and I, because he he's not shutting the door on Nate Diaz there either. But that's Conor McGregor. Yeah, um, I don't know which way they'll go. I'll say this: I don't know who McGregor fights next, but he's going to make a lot. Of, but it's going to be a big event when he does, whether that's Ferguson or Diaz. I'd rather he fight Tony Ferguson. I am so much more interested in that fight. But if they go with Nate Diaz, I know why: because there are financial realities in the world, and much as I don't like it, I can't change the world by just not liking it. Uh, all right. On that note, uh, Jeff, what do you want to plug? All right. So my review of the number one movie uh, of the weekend, Blade Runner 2049, the long-awaited sequel to Blade Runner. It's finally here. Check out my review of that movie. Um, also, uh, I will be reviewing uh, Happy Death Day uh, this week. Uh, check out my uh, game preview of uh, The Evil Within 2, which I got to play. I'm going to be doing some Nintendo gameplay previews coming up, and I'll hopefully be covering those. Um, and what else? Um, 
Not confirmed yet for Thor Ragnarok, but uh, fingers crossed. And uh, a few other uh, pokers I have in the fire. But stay tuned. All right. Will do. Pat, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, just once again, if you haven't heard it already, here on the Radulich and Broadcasting Network, you can listen to TV Party with myself and Mark Radulich. We just reviewed season 3A of Fuller House that dropped a few weeks back. And we will, of course, be following up with season 3B, which will be released on Netflix in December. So we will have that next podcast for you then on TV Party. Uh, other than that, continue to listen to me here. Uh, thank you for enjoying my ramblings. I appreciate that so much. I was okay. I was asked to ask you this. Have you actually pre-ordered Paige Van Zandt's book yet? Uh, I tend not to pre-order stuff. Um, it's just one of those things where I'm still one of the dinosaurs who likes to go into a bookstore, grab a physical hard copy of a book, and read it. Um, so, I, I, and I have an e-reader. I have a Kindle. I just don't use it. Uh, yeah, I have that same thing. I I like the tactile sensation of reading uh, rather than doing it on a monitor. However, convenient. I'm, ar- I'm archaic and I'm okay with it. Uh, have you seen Jack Slack's um, like review of the book? <laughs> no, I, I'm really curious to see how bad he rips it. It's hilarious. <laughs> My thing is, okay, I've read a couple of MMA books. I've read Randy Couture's biography, which I thought was interesting, but could have used a better Ghost Rider. Um, I'll say it that way. I've read particular excerpts from people like Dan Severn, um, a, a lot of your your last generation of guys, stuff with Mark Kerr. Um, so have you read the self-serving piece of tripe that is Matt Hughes's autobiography? I, I outright refuse to. Um, because I figure my, my low bar right now is Chuck Liddell's fighting for my life. Fair. Um, which was really horrible. Um, uh, in every sense of the word, I won't read Matt Hughes's book because I can only imagine how badly self-serving it is. And I'm not a Matt Hughes fan to begin with. Um, but this one, this is, this is kind of. Do you remember when Mick Foley came out with his initial autobiography and it was a great book, it was well-written, everybody enjoyed it, and then there was the idea to fast-track books afterward. So they had The Rock do one, even though The Rock had only been in the company for two years. Yeah, they had Stone Cold do one right after The Rock, didn't they? Yeah. Well, here's the thing with The Rock's book. People were really intrigued by the Foley book because Foley had been in wrestling for so long in world class, Memphis, WCW, ECW. So he had a lot of stories to tell in that regard. Turns out he's a pretty good writer. Yeah, and that only helped. But beyond that, the intrigue was there for the stories of being around all these places and all these people. The Rock is writing a book where wrestling fans are going to be the one to buy it. Wrestling fans didn't necessarily want to hear about, you know, life at the University of Miami and football and football and football, which is largely what his book was about. They didn't hear too much about growing up as Rocky Johnson's son, interacting with stars at a young age, all that stuff. Well, and somewhat in The Rock's defense, like, again, that was poorly marketed because the majority of his life, again, after he was a kid, was football. That's where he yeah. devoted himself, and it I'm makes not sense. That's the rock what, for that. Yeah, no, no. 
I get what you're saying. I just wanted to put that out there for anyone else who might not have known that. Yeah, he, again, The Rock played a lot of football, was on a national championship team, I believe, at the University of Miami. He was, uh, he was like roommates with Warren Sapp. Yes. But that was his life before you know, knee injury, before injuries uh, forced him to take a different path, and that's when he got into wrestling. Yeah, and, you know, again, he didn't have that interaction with all these stars that Foley did that intrigued people in that book. That was the appeal. This was a cash grab, and it didn't work. I think the mindset here is that Paige has a certain amount of marketability to her. She's been on Dancing with the Stars. She's headlined shows on Fox for the UFC. She's very clearly the UFC it girl in terms of crossover marketing potential and popularity because she's an absolutely breathtakingly cute girl. No question about it. Um, it's just that is this timing right for this book and where is the story and where is the narrative? And if it's written from that first person perspective, I believe only 23 years old. Um, so there's not a lot of life packed into there. So I don't know where the story's going to lie. I don't know if she gives dirt on dating Cody Garbrandt or what have you, or the stuff that would be mildly interesting to this point. I think if this book were written 10 years later, probably have a lot more appeal to it. But as of right now, I'll say my expectation is that it's not worse than Chuck Liddell's book but it's not better say uh, Tatum Brown. All right. Uh, you mentioned TV party. For those of you interested on Thursday, Mark Radlich and I reviewed season one of NBC's Hannibal. It's a lot of me talking because I love that show to death. Um, so feel free to listen to that in the archives. Mark and I talking about that. Uh, when Mark gets some free time, we will do seasons two and three, which I will happily rewatch. Um, this Tuesday, Mark and I will be reviewing Blade Runner 2037 or whatever. I forget the other half of that number. On Damn You Hollywood. So I will give him more grief about not reviewing other movies with me, but because <laughs> it amuses <laughs> I, me. I will say, reaction. And, and I'll put it out here since we can get some fan reaction to it. Uh, you know, obviously this is the MMA show, so we have a lot more fans who are singularly minded towards MMA in terms of what they're listening to this show for. But I'll float the idea out here. If I was to host a podcast highlighting the releases on Hulu that have just arrived, both of the ABC TGIF lineup, and those shows being Full House, Family Matters, Perfect Strangers, Step by Step, and Hanging with Mr. Cooper – if there is interest in me talking about these shows, reviewing them with potentially Mark, Robert, Jesse Starcher, whomever it may be, if there's interest there, let me know because I've been rewatching these, looking at what I, what I look at through rose-colored glasses and what doesn't translate. Let me know if you'd be interested in hearing my musings, thoughts, and reviews on these shows. All righty. So that's where you can find me over the next week. We will be back next week. There is no uh, UFC event this coming Saturday. We will be back next week. Um, that is the 15th. And we will be previewing UFC Fight Night 118. 
It's a Fight Pass exclusive card, which are hit or miss. This one looks a little more miss. Uh, the main event should be good. It's Donald Cerrone versus Darren Till. If you are not familiar with Darren Till, look up his UFC fights. Um, there's some really interesting ways he and Donald match up. Uh, the rest of it, I, 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 I just have like a depressed sigh. But we'll talk about the rest of it next week. We'll preview that. And we will be also next, uh, sorry. Now, next week, we'll just be previewing that. The week after, we'll review that and preview Fight Night 119, which is headlined by Lyoto Machida versus Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson's going to sleep. Um, that also has Damian Maya and Colby Covington, which has some interest. Uh, Trinaldo and Jim Miller. That's actually not a bad card. Tiago Santos and Jack Hermanson. Somebody's going to sleep there. John Lineker's fighting. Okay, that's a decent enough uh, fight night, so... Anyway, next week we'll preview Cerrone versus Till. Hope you all come back for that. Until then, thank you again for being here, for listening, for sharing us with your friends. If you have people you know who are fans of the sport, please point them in our direction. I'm happy to try and win people over. Uh, Until next time, thank you again. For Pat and Jeff, I'm Robert, reminding you to please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.